Would you grab a Bible and would you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? We'll be going through, I hope, the whole chapter this morning. We'll see how far we get. My aim is to complete it, but you know me. I tend to get going and then time gets away from us, so we'll see where we get to. This chapter, if you've looked ahead at all, or, or maybe if you, um, if you had noticed that uh, of the title of the message this morning, which I've titled Marriage and Singleness in Proper Perspective, maybe this is a chapter that you've been looking forward to. It seems to me that, that uh, when we talk about things like marriage and we talk about things like singleness in the church, they tend to be very popular topics. People want to uh, to hear these topics. We want to discuss them. We want to see what God's Word has to say about our marriages or our singleness. So maybe you've been uh, looking forward to this, this day, this passage, and excited about that. I will say this as we approach chapter 7. The New Testament, um, of all the things that it says about, about marriage or singleness, there's no text that says more than this chapter. It's the longest treatment of the subject of marriage, certainly the longest treatment of the subject of singleness, probably the only uh, real concentrated uh, treatment of the, of the topic of singleness in the New Testament. So, yes, this is a great chapter to look at, but I want to say this up front. If you're looking for evidence that Paul has a high view of marriage, this passage might be a bit puzzling. As we read it, there are going to be times in which he talks about marriage in such a way that you're going to kind of feel like he's maybe sort of saying, take it or leave it. Uh, there's times when his, uh, his attitude towards marriage sounds like more like indifference than support. Um, I'll try to explain that, and, and uh, I think contextually, there's some things that will, that will need to be said that will help you sort out what it is that Paul is and is not saying about marriage. He's certainly not indifferent to marriage. If you're single, this passage will feel a lot more affirming. Paul is very pro-singleness, which we'll find out here as we go through the text. But here's the thing. To be honest with you, I don't think chapter 7's main point is ultimately about marriage or singleness. He talks about those two things, but, but they're there to frame a more important idea. This is what I think is his ultimate main point. It's live as you are called. Whether you're married, whether you're single, he'll either even talk about some other ways in which our, our lives are, are framed, things that, that sort of define our existence. He'll say, live as you're called and keep it in perspective. That's really the main idea of the chapter. I'll explain that more as we go through it. But notice this, chapter 7 begins a shift in the letter that really will run through much of the next four chapters or so. Up until now, chapters 1 through 6, Paul has been admonishing the church. Right? We've, we've, we've spent a lot of time hearing him address serious problems in the church, these, these issues of their, their sinful divisiveness, their worldly thinking rather than spiritual thinking. And he's addressed also their tolerance of some pretty severe immorality in the church. So there's been an admonishment up until chapter 7. Chapter 7, again, turns the corner a little bit. And what we see here now is that he's beginning to address some specific questions that they have asked him. Um, it seems that maybe they've, they've sent him some correspondence where they have, have asked either very specific questions 
or uh, maybe they're seeking some pastoral counsel. Maybe they've just said some things, and he's saying, mm, I need to address that. <laughs> but, but that's what's going on here. He's, he's specifically addressing giving pastoral counsel to some specific issues in the church. And he begins that section, that counsel, with this passage dealing with marriage and singleness. I said uh, there's going to be some contextual things that we'll need to work through, meaning what, what he's talking about, about marriage and singleness in first century Corinth or first century Roman world is a bit different than what we think of today when we think of marriage relationships or singleness. So let me give you a, a, a bit of a background before we dive into the text. Marriage, and I said this last week, marriage was usually not entered into for love. Uh, again, I've said this many times, the focus in Roman society was on the enhancement of status, right? It was, it was on the, 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 the enhancement of maybe family wealth. It was about climbing this, this sort of social ladder, this idea of being perceived as elite, perceived as wise. And so as a result, marriages were usually, you know, used as one of the rungs on that social ladder. Marriages were often prearranged, which, you know, that, that really sort of pushes against our modern sensibilities, although I will say as a father of teenage girls now, I, I get this concept. Uh, my girls are cringing right now as I say that. Uh, marriages were prearranged. Um, the, the, the man would commonly provide some kind of a, of a payment in order to procure his bride. Again, he's trying to elevate his status, so he's out to to sort of shop around for his best options, providing something like a, a dowry in order to obtain his wife. Husbands were very much, or very often, I should say, much older than their brides. Uh, so you might have a, a, a younger man who's more established socially, and he's going after a wife who, who may very well be significantly younger than him, just beyond the age of puberty. And so that age difference would cause a relational dynamic, a, a, often a relational hierarchy. Oftentimes the husband was, was really the dominant authority figure in a marriage. And what they were searching for as they're out looking for spouses is, is really more of harmony or compatibility over romance. Again, pretty different than modern Western marriages. I mean, compatibility is an important priority, but, but romance seems to be the driving force, at least in the way we think about marriage. So that's what marriage was like. Divorce was very common too, very common, and it was very easy to get divorced. A marriage could end simply by a husband telling his wife to get out of the house, to leave the house. Uh, it, it, it was that simple. It was that sort of clean cut and a, and a legal perspective, and again, it happened often, suffice it to say, it could be very difficult to be a woman in Roman society. Marriage was often the way in which, you, uh, for a woman, that she would have not only status, but protection and financial stability. So for it to be that easily detached, it could put her in some serious jeopardy. But it happened all the time, uh, and we'll see that Paul addresses that issue here. When it comes to singleness, we could say that singleness was not really valued at all. There were plenty of single people in society, but oftentimes the single people were those 
who were serving as bond servants or, or, or slaves. Uh, for men, again, marriage was a way to gain and maintain status in society. Again, for women, it was this social necessity in order to have financial stability and protection. So singleness was, was not ideal. Uh, in fact, the law required younger men and women to be married if they were to be eligible to receive a family inheritance. If a woman was widowed, it was expected that she would remarry within a year. And if she was divorced, it was expected that she would remarry within six months. If you have children and you're not married, your children would not be considered citizens of Rome. So singleness was, in effect, this ticket to sort of second-class citizenship, and it was not desirable to be single. Now, you know, it's, it's, I say that, and it's, it's funny, because I think about our culture and our society, I think it's becoming more and more desirable for many in our culture to be single, but I wonder if our attitudes in the church are just the opposite of that. Many single people in the church would say, boy, that sounds like nothing much has changed. It doesn't seem to be desirable or valued to be single. Paul wants to address that too. The Bible offers a much loftier and beautiful understanding of both marriage and singleness, which Paul's words here in chapter 7 will illustrate. But again, keep the context in mind as Paul lays it out. Uh, remember what marriage and singleness represented in that culture, because as we read along, some things will sound strange to our modern ears, but we can contextualize the biblical principles here and, uh, and find there's lots of helpful application. So let's look towards the text. Let me start with this. What can we learn about Christian marriage? What can we learn about Christian marriage? Paul begins with a treatment on the topic of sex within marriage. Remember, at the end of chapter 6, Paul was dealing with sexual licentiousness in the church. There were some in the church who were actively engaging in what was culturally normal, again, worldly thinking. They were engaging in premarital sex, in extramarital sexual immorality, and Paul is admonishing them for that in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, as he's addressing a specific question, we find that there were also other people in the church who had taken a very different route, a very different approach towards the way they viewed sex. For them, it seemed highly spiritual to abstain from sex altogether, even if they were married. It was this form of aestheticism. It was very, very common and growing in its popularity, this idea of sort of, uh, of taking physical, material things and, and pushing them aside in view of more of a spiritual piety. This comes out in their question, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's what they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Again, that is not Paul's statement. That is the statement that they had sent to him. And here, as I read this and think about it, is how you know Roman marriages were not often entered into for love. <laughs> if your conclusion that sex outside of marriage is sinful, and by the way, that is a, that is a right conclusion, that's correct, sex outside of marriage is sinful, but if that leads you then 
to conclude that, that sex, even for the married Christian, should be avoided, I would say something's fishy, right? Something's off about that kind of thinking. What man who's even remotely attracted to his wife would ever think that sex could just be given up for piety's sake? I have never met a married man with that kind of resolve and self-control, and I would say neither has Paul. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the first thing he says here is that this kind of of self-control for a married person to say, I'm going to abstain from sexual relations altogether, he says, that's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. And in fact, the Corinthians' attempt at sexual piety was probably failing left and right and may explain why in chapter 6 he's dealing with the frequent visiting of prostitutes, why that was such a problem in the church. It may very well have been this camp who was saying we shouldn't touch women who were actually failing miserably at that and landing in sexual immorality. So he's saying here that's unrealistic. But more than this, more than this, Paul affirms sexual intimacy as a gift. As a gift within, this is so important, its proper context. It's the exclusivity of a marriage between one husband and one wife. One man, one woman, each having their own. You notice that there's an exclusivity and a, and a singularity about the way he says that. And and not only does he affirm sexual intimacy in marriage, but he gives some pastoral guidance that will help them engage in healthy, God-designed sexual intimacy. Verse 3, he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have any authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What Paul says here about sex within marriage speaks not only to what sex is for, but really more ultimately what marriage is for. What marriage is for. And what he says here is a radical departure from the culture's understanding of marriage, both first century Roman culture and I would say our own culture. It's a radical departure. He's saying this, it's not about you. It's not about you. Your role in marriage is not to seek for your own gain, but to seek for your spouse's gain. So he's he's saying here, when you think about sexual intimacy within your marriage, it's about giving. It's about giving. So again, radical departure from the way human beings so often view sexual intimacy. We are so often driven by a desire to take 
for ourselves, to seek our own pleasure, to seek our own gain, to, to look at my, my spouse or, you know, let's even think outside of marriage for a minute, think of our sexual partners not as me belonging to them, but them belonging to me in such a way that I'm here to take. And so Paul is saying that's not the way God designed marriage or the sexual act within marriage to operate. He says your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to her. Or if you're a woman, it belongs to your husband, it belongs to your spouse. Now what's interesting about that is that in the previous chapter, he talked about our bodies not belonging to us, but belonging to God, right? So here he makes this this link to that statement in such a way that, that they can work together. You don't belong to you, you belong to God, but if you're married, you also belong to your spouse. How does that work? What, what is that doing? Well, I think what he's getting at here is he's going back to the idea of the creation of marriage and sex. He's, he's already quoted from Genesis 1 here in chapter 6, and he talks about that moment when God puts Adam and Eve together in that marriage relationship. He gives them sexual union, and he says, the two shall become one flesh. And that is after he has declared that he has made mankind, male and female, in his image. So this oneness of the male and the female is reflective of the oneness of the plurality of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So here we see that in, in, in the context of marriage, this belonging to one another is not somehow exclusive from our belonging to Christ. They go together because we are united trinitarily, husband, wife, and God, in a way that reflects the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what is that relationship about? It's about giving. It's about love and giving glory to one another. It's about sacrificial giving, right? So he's saying this idea that, that, that it's not right to, to, to even touch a woman within marriage means that you've got a wrong view of sex. It's not about taking. If it's about taking, then I guess maybe he would say, then don't do it. But he's not saying that. He's saying, no, it's about, it's about giving. It's about reflecting the glory of God. And further, he says then that sex should be a regular practice for married people. Right? Verse 5, he talks about that here. He says, uh, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's saying this should not be something that you, you, you neglect. Earlier he said to give the conjugal rights to your spouse. Continually look to serve them in this way that, that demonstrates that oneness of flesh, that self-giving nature. There may be times when you might say for, for piety's sake that you, you could abstain from sexual intimacy with one another. Maybe he says if, if, you know, for a time of prayer, but, but he says don't do that long, come together again. And, don't, and it may be even saying that he's, that he's saying don't, don't even necessarily think that that's something you need to do regularly. There, there are many commentators that think that verse 6 
actually should be attached here. Verse 6 says this, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. That's a break in paragraph that looks in the English translation like it belongs with the next verses, but some think that this belongs with this previous verse. In other words, he's saying, you can take a break maybe for prayer for a time, but I'm saying that as a concession, not a command. Bottom line, if you're married, belonging to your spouse is a God-designed way for you to reflect your belonging to him. It's reflective of his image. So there was clearly some questions in the church about the proper role and use of sexual intimacy between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Paul makes a pretty clear pastoral case for what is and is not God-glorifying with our bodies sexually. But what other issues relating to marriage need pastoral guidance? What about divorce? mentioned before that it was very common then. It certainly is common now. What does Paul have to say here about separation, divorce, and then about remarriage? Look at verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. A couple things to say up front just to help kind of uh, understand the wording here. He talks about separation and divorce. Again, probably not quite in the same way that we would think about those two concepts. For the wife, she could not divorce her husband. He would have to approve and write the certificate of divorce. Uh, so for her to leave, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a divorce. It would be considered a separation, but it's kind of the same idea. In other words, he's saying, don't leave your spouse. That's the, that's the idea. And then he says here, this is something that, that, I, that, that I, I command here, uh, but it's not me, but the Lord. In other words, he's saying there is direct teaching of Jesus on this topic. And that direct teaching, we could go to Mark chapter 10, for example, and see what Jesus has to say about divorce. He was asked, what about divorce? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, and Jesus points them back to the Mosaic law, and he says there was a provision given for divorce in the law, but that's not because it was God's intent. It's because your hearts were hard. And so he reiterates this idea that that in the creation of marriage, that the two were to become one flesh. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And he goes on to say that if, if we do divorce our spouses and then marry another, we make that new spouse commit adultery. So he has this very high view of marriage and a very clear directive against divorce. God hates divorce. You say, that's a harsh statement. Well, it's not my statement. It's Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. God, God hates divorce. He's not for it. You say, well, why? Well, let me give you two reasons why. And I think this is what Paul is kind of underlying here in the text. The first one is because it breaks the union that reflects him, the Lord, in us. If our union is a Trinitarian picture 
right? Ephesians 5, Paul will talk more about the relationship between a husband and a wife reflecting the relationship between Christ and his church. To separate that is to tear apart something that God never can or would, his relationship with us, right? So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a breaking of a union that reflects him in us. It's, it's a message that, that rather than glorifying God in the world brings dishonor to that image. That's, that's one reason. The second one is because it, f- it flies, divorce, flies in the face of gospel reconciliation. Now, he's going to say this later to the Corinthian people in his next letter, 2 Corinthians 5, but he says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So for Paul, I think, I think his, his summary of that would be to say something like this. If we're people of the gospel and the message of the gospel is one of reconciliation, then as people of the gospel, one of the great ways that we can proclaim that message of reconciliation is through our marriages, by reconciling well with one another when things go awry. To divorce one another is to give up on that idea of reconciliation, which is in some sense, in some way, a repudiation of the power of the gospel. So he's encouraging them, he's imploring them, if you're married, stay married. Work through your issues here together, but stay married as much as it's possible to do. So if you're, if you're wrestling with that, maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you're divorced and you're not remarried yet. Or maybe you're contemplating divorce. Just know this. Paul's counsel for you is that there is both gospel hope and a gospel mandate to wait for and pursue reconciliation. There's both gospel hope and a gospel mandate to do that. Now, if you've been divorced, it's not the unpardonable sin. Jesus points back to the law of God, and he says, you know, there was a concession made. It's not God's heart, but, but there's, a, there's a recognition on God's part that in a, in a sinful world full of sinful people, things go bad. Relationships break down. He makes a concession for that and some protections for the parties involved. If you've been divorced, it's not the unpardonable sin. And to get remarried to perhaps another person, there's been many times when those relationships have been very healthy and God-honoring. But the, the message here is don't be hasty to remarry another. Be intentional to the best of your ability to pursue reconciliation with your first spouse. Remaining 
unmarried in the meantime keeps the door open for reconciliation and therefore the command of Christ is not broken. Now I will say that there are some bad applications of texts like this that are worth noting. A bad application of this would be to say for, let's say for a woman, you, you cannot ever separate from your husband. And a woman might say, he's abusing me. Right? This is a dangerous situation. This command is not, hear me, is not saying in a situation like that that you can't separate from him. Okay? Please hear that. What it is saying is that you can still have hope for his reconciliation. So if you're in a situation like that, where you have an, a, maybe an abusive or an unsafe situation, I want to encourage you, tell somebody. Tell me. Tell our elders. We want to help you. There's no need not to, to be removed immediately from a danger of a situation like that. This, this doesn't prohibit that. What it's saying is, let the gospel, give the gospel opportunity to repair and reconcile what's wrong in that. Believe in the power and the hope of the gospel. What about remarriage? There are two instances here in chapter 7 when Paul makes remarriage a perfectly legitimate option. We'll deal with one here and we'll deal with the other in a moment. I want you to flip over to the end of the passage because we're still talking about marriage situations in verse 39. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So in a nutshell, Paul's saying here, you are bound to this marriage relationship, this oneness of flesh, as long as both parties are alive. But if, if one, of your, one of the spouses dies, then you are released from that 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 obligation, that bond, right? You're released. You can be remarried in that. Now, he does say here that he would wish uh, that, that uh, you would be happier if you remained as you are. Um, we'll talk more about Paul's view of singleness here in a minute, but nonetheless, it's a very clear uh, statement of, of freedom to remarry when a spouse passes away. Notice, too, that in this culture, a widow was often probably a very young woman. We, think, we tend to think of widows as maybe older women in our, in our day, but, but a widow was usually going to be a younger woman. So for him to make this statement was an important statement, right? You're free to be remarried. You're free to step back into the, the protection and the social stability of a marriage relationship, but you're not required to do that. Remember, the culture said you, you should be married within a year if you're widowed. And Paul's saying, I think you might be happier if you don't. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But what about the other, um, the other issue here? Um, lastly, he talks about this in marriage. He talks about marriage to a non-Christian. Look at verse 12. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? So he talks a little bit about this idea of being married to a non-believer. Here we see the other option of acceptable uh, divorce and remarriage, which we'll come to in a moment. But notice he says this. This is a command. He says that's from he says, I, not the Lord, say this. So we, he's saying here, I don't have a direct teaching of Jesus to refer to on this topic. Jesus doesn't address this in the scriptures, but he believes that he has the spirit of God in this counsel that he's giving. And he's recognizing that this is a, probably a pretty common uh, occurrence in the Corinthian situation. It's a new church, right? This church is just a couple of years old. The gospel has just come into Corinth through the preaching and church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it's highly conceivable that there were people who, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but their spouse did not, right? Highly likely that this was the case. And so if that was the case, you could imagine there would be immense pressure on that married person in terms of what kind of strain that puts on their marriage. For their non-believing spouse, if it was, if it was a believing wife and a non-believing husband, and again, remember the kind of, uh, of hierarchical authority that a husband often had in that marriage, it would be very difficult for her in a situation like that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you can think of a, a, just lots of different ways. The, the, the pressure could come the other way. The church might be saying to them, you know, you shouldn't be yoked together with a non-believer, and they may feel that kind of pressure. So I'm sure it was a very real thing. So Paul wants to speak into that. Now, first of all, Paul is not encouraging in any way that we as believers would pursue relationships with non-believers after the fact. Again, in his next letter to the Corinthians, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So if you're a Christian, he's saying there's no, there's no reason whatsoever to even consider marrying a non-believer. But if you have become a believer as a married person and your spouse is not, that's the issue at hand here. And so what does he say? How do we, how do we live in situations like that? Well, he basically gives us two instructions here. The, the first one is that he says, if, if that's the case, then stay married. Stay married. Why? Because he says your being in that household has a sanctifying effect, right? He talks about you know, the unbelieving spouse being made holy because of the believing spouse and the children being holy. Now, he's not talking about 
a holiness or a sanctification in the sort of a systematic theology way. He's not saying that, that because you're a Christian, they're a Christian. But he is talking about a, a presence of, of gospel proclamation, of Holy Spirit peace being brought into that household that has a sanctifying effect on them, right? So you, your, your spouse has opportunity because of your spiritual presence in the home to be made holy, right? To be covered with blessing, the blessing of God within that household. So he's encouraging, stay in that situation if at all possible, if that spouse will tolerate you. But he also then gives a, an, an out. He says if that spouse does not, if that spouse uh, pursues a separation from you. He says, in such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. And again, pointing to this idea that we've been called to peace. The word here for not enslaved is the same as the word used in chapter, or excuse me, in verse uh, 39 when he says that a widow is not bound any longer to her dead husband. It's that same idea. So in other words, there's a freedom, there's a release. If you are abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, Paul is not denying you the possibility of remarriage to a believing spouse. And he says that only in the Lord, right? But there's that, that concession there, there's that encouragement there. But, he says, apart from that, remain. How do you know, he says, how do you know whether you will save your husband, how, will you know, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Certainly we can read that as a, as a possibility. Right? They may come to faith because of your godly presence, your gospel witness in their life. There's also another way to read this. How do you know? You don't know. You don't know. And, and therefore, you may live your whole life as a gospel witness to your spouse, and they don't come to faith. You don't know, but the encouragement here is to remain. Remain with that continual presence, that continual witness, and trust God for the outcome. That pretty much concludes Paul's teaching here on marriage. What can we learn about singleness? What can we learn about singleness? Look back at verse 6. He begins to address the single. Again, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. And we're not sure if he means what he said before or what I'm about to, to read now. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, which is to say single. Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, and one of another. So there's two things that we can see right off the bat in these verses about singleness. The first one is that it's good. It's good. It is, secondly, a gift. I wish that all would be as I am. Paul is, 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 is commending this idea of singleness. And secondly, he's saying, because it's a it's a gift from God. Now, he, he makes mention here that some people have certain kinds of gifts and some have another. This is not a gift 
for everyone. But for those that, 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 that have the gift of singleness, it is a good gift. And he goes on to explain how is it a gift. Really look beginning in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and is determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, again, remember, this is, a, this is radical teaching in light of the culture's view on singleness. And as I said before, unfortunately, it's also probably radical teaching in view of the modern church's view, or at least the way that it's communicated often about singleness. But Paul lays out a very important function of the gift of singleness. He's not saying this is a devalued state at all. He's saying that in light of, of your calling and your belonging to Christ and the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given as believers, singleness becomes an incredible gift of undistracted devotion and ministry for the Lord. Singleness is not to be viewed as a second-class status. It certainly shouldn't be viewed then as a sort of in-weight holding period until you can sort of reach the final destination of getting married. Paul's saying, no, no, this is a gift. Why is it a gift from God? How can it be a gift from God in a culture that says singleness equals loneliness? Because in the economy of God, we have, we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have a new family in the body of Christ. In other words, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing lost for the single person who's in Christ, but there's tremendous gain in terms of their availability, their flexibility for devotion and ministry to the Lord, so much so that Paul could say, this has served me so well. This gift has been truly a gift in my life, and I would wish that all would have the gift like I have it. Now, he does, he does concede that not everybody has the gift, right? And we do read here, as he, he, he says certain, certain times, that if you, if you don't, if, you're, if you sort of have this passion for, for marriage that's burning within you, then that's fine. Get married. And, I, and this is where I, I think it can almost sound, he can almost sound indifferent to marriage, right? Well, you can get married. It's not a sin. 
It's like, what? But that's not what he means. But what he's saying is if you, if you don't have that clear sense that you're called and gifted for this life of devotion to ministry and to the Lord, like there's nothing, nothing preventing you from getting married, right? But don't look at that as a necessary destination because what you have from the Lord in this state is so important. So I want to not only encourage those of you who are single to invest in where God has you now and look for the ways in which that can be utilized for his glory and for your good, but I also want to encourage the church, those of us who are married within the church, to stop being so foolish as to keep asking our single people if they're going to get married. Because that denies the great possibility that God has gifted them for something that you can't do, which is be fully devoted to him in ways that married people can't. Now, is that a knock on married people? No. Paul's not saying to be devoted to your spouse or anxious about meeting the needs of your spouse is a bad thing. In fact, we could go back to the beginning of the chapter and say that's what you're supposed to do. Meet their needs, right? But he's, he's making a distinction. Like, there is a freedom to singleness that is freer than the freedom within married life. So what can we learn about singleness? It is very much counterculturally highly valuable in the kingdom and the economy of God. I said that the chapter is going to talk about marriage, so we're going to talk about singleness, but I also said that I don't think that's really the ultimate point of the chapter. So what is the ultimate point of the chapter? I mentioned before that it's really about keeping things in perspective, and I get that by looking at verses 17 uh, to 31. Let's read it together. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of, marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, brothers. Don't become bondservants of men. So in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Notice here that this almost feels like a, an out-of-left-field uh, you know, paragraph because he's been talking about marriage and singleness on either end of this, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about whether you're circumcised or whether you're a bondservant or not. But I, but I think he's bringing this in to sort of highlight this idea that like, there's lots of ways in which we, we sort of find our identity. There's lots of ways in which we categorize ourselves, right? Whether we're of the circumcision or not. In other words, are we, were we religious Jews or were we Gentiles? Or, you know, whether, what's our social status? Are we free men or are we bondservants? He's saying there's lots of ways we can do that. And I think what he's saying is marriage and singleness is another way in which we do that. 
Again, we look to sort of build this sense of, of identity on our, our relationship status. And Paul is saying, look, don't worry about that. What were you when God called you? Whatever you were, focus on being that. Now, if there's opportunities to avail yourself of a change of status, if you're a bondservant and you can get free, do it. If you're single and you can get married and you feel the need to do that, do it. But don't make that the thing that defines you. What defines you is that you are in Christ. He's called you as you are to serve him in that capacity. So focus on that. Have a right perspective. You know, I wonder, do we often make way too much of our status? When we think about marriage or singleness, um, can I just challenge us on this? Do we, do we have a non-biblical fairy tale in mind that drives our present desires? Whether you're married or whether you're single, is there, is there this non-biblical fairy tale of freedom in mind? So if you're single and you're longing to be married, it's like, you know, I just need to be swept off my feet. I need that, that, that other person who's going to complete me, as Jerry Maguire would say, right? That, that, that person that's going to bring this sense of meaning and worth to my life, and we're going to live happily ever after, and that's where I'm going to find my significance. Or maybe you're, you're going to look at singleness as that same kind of avenue. Like if I was only free from the shackles of family or obligation or, or a wife or a husband, if I could just bachelor it up for the rest of my life, that's where I'm going to find my significance and my value. And it's all based on this fairy tale mindset that somehow that's where meaning comes from. That's where value comes from. Paul's saying, no, there's a, there's a much bigger perspective here. Your meaning and your value and your significance come from your belonging to Christ. And your perspective on, on life itself ought to be guided by, I think what he says in verses 24 and 31, which are very key. Verse 24. Again, he says, whatever condition each one was called Therefore, let him remain. And in verse 31, he says, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, that's, a, that's a, 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 the flow from the previous sentence, but here's the, here's the part. For the present form of this world is passing away. Brothers, whatever condition you were called, let you remain with God for the present form of this world is passing away. Have a bigger perspective. Again, your meaning and your purpose is not found in your relational status in life. This life is temporary. This life is fleeting. There are eternal things at stake. There are eternal matters at hand. Use your marriage. Use your singleness as opportunities to work towards that end of living as you were called, of being ministers of the gospel, proclaiming a message of reconciliation, of hope in the world that points 
to the goodness of God, the union of, of the Trinity and of us and him, right? Use your life in that way because it's going to be over soon enough. And what matters is the bigger picture perspective. You have a calling. So live it out. If we make too much of our status because we have non-biblical fairy tales in mind that drive our present desires, it's indicative that we have not only worldly thinking, but idolatrous thinking. How does the gospel speak to the issue of marriage and singleness? How does the gospel speak to our heart's desires in that way? To our identity? I'm going to end with this. You've got to go back to where he started. What Paul says to them about who they are in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him. In all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel meets every need that we have. Our identity, our belonging, our security, our hope. I love this picture of stability. He is faithful. He will sustain you to the end. The gospel meets every need we have. Our marriages and our singleness cannot meet those needs, but they can promote the beauty of those truths when we live in those relationships as we were called. I hope that's helpful. It's a lot of text. It's a tough chapter to wrestle through. Again, I want to invite you, if you have specific questions, if you're dealing with specific issues in life, particularly related to things like divorce or remarriage or the challenge maybe of, of singleness, anything in that, in that regard, um, I'd love to talk with you more about that and work through God's word with you more. So I invite you to reach out. Let's talk. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word speaks so practically to us. I thank you that you are concerned about every detail of our lives, Lord. And certainly our, our relationships, whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we're longing for a spouse, those are details that are, they're big details in our lives, Lord, and you care about them. And you address all of the ways in which those things can go well, and you address when they don't. So I, I just praise you that you're a God who cares for us. May we be a people who are obedient to you. May we be a people who live as we're called for your glory. May we be a people who don't put too much stock, certainly not an idolatrous worship, into our relational status. But let us be a people holy for you, fully satisfied in you, for you are good, and we have every gift we need. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.